Well, good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and everybody out there. And uh, it should be a nice day. I think it's going to be all right. It doesn't look too bad out there, although it's a bit dark still. It uh, is dark. <laughs> but anyhow, um, yeah, so everybody needs to be out in the garden today after the program's finished. Uh, get some things done because yep. time is marching the ground now seems to have a bit of moisture in it um, so I'd be out there putting down your compost and things like that getting ready for mulching and perhaps a little later I'm trying to empty my compost bins at the moment mm-hmm. um, and so I get the compost spread and because I cold compost there's all sorts of things that are potentially going to come up in it yes <laughs> uh, so once I get the compost down on the garden beds then I like to try and get the mulch over the top uh, ready for the summer because yep. if you don't get on top of it I mean everybody has noticed I'm sure that things like winter grass sticky weed uh, you name it it's all germinating coming up like mad uh, flickweed all those things are all going gangbusters and if we don't get on top of them fairly soon we're not going to <laughs> It'll be all too late. So. Well, the other thing is that um, I noticed only yesterday that some things are starting to shoot. Oh, yes. Already. Yeah. yeah wow. It, yeah, there are buds bursting. There are. Uh, I mean, I've got a few things that are always on the early side, but they're almost in leaf already. Mm. Um, and, yes, yeah, certainly lots of other deciduous plants. You can see the buds plumping up and what have you, which probably does suggest, too, that if you're going to be planting any bare-rooted stock, don't leave, yeah, yeah, don't leave that too long no. either. Um, so if you've been thinking about going to the nursery to buy some new fruit trees or some roses or whatever else that is traditionally available in that form, mm. get out there fairly quickly because I think they're all moving. So you need to buy it and get it planted post-haste. Absolutely. Mm. And incidentally, during the week, um, I had a phone call from our good friend Graham Morrison mm. just uh, to tell me to remind listeners that now over this next week or so is the time to um, to spray peaches and nectarines with a Bordeaux or a copper spray. Mm. Or suffer the curly leaf consequences yes. later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good little handy reminder as well. And, of course, you need to try and pick... Some appropriate weather for that. There is no point in spraying and if then it's having, going to rain. Yeah, bucket yep. down rain five minutes later, it'll be all wasted. So exactly. Need to pick your day and get out. And not there when and, it's windy. Uh, yeah, well, then most of it doesn't go where you put it. No, it goes all over you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so yes, it's a bit of a. It can be a bit of a messy job, but um, it's well worth it if you want to save your peaches and sundry other stone fruits from the awful problems of curly leaf later in the season. Mm. So yeah. All right, good. Okay, more than time for us to say a very good morning to Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, yes, we're about two-thirds of the way through our rearrange for the winter, moving plants and hedging and mm. clipping and whatever, but, uh, yeah, it is becoming a little bit nerve-wracking. It's, uh, we are heading into the final uh, few weeks and still a lot of work left to do. And in our case, we're, we've actually run into quite a bit of moisture. We've I, 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 you know, drought everywhere, but uh, not in our little neck of the woods. It's, it's actually quite yeah, wet. So you've had some heavy and rains. And so we've been yeah. keeping off. Uh, soil, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we we had a cloudburst a few nights ago, and um, and, and it's been pretty wet for the last um, what six eight weeks, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. So we've we've it's forced us to concentrating on certain areas of the garden. We keep right off our 
our borders when it's wet and consequently most of our borders uh, are still the, the debris from last summer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we've managed to tackle most of our cutting back, I feel. We've still got to rearrange um, some trees. Uh, one or two holes have, have appeared and we want to do a bit of planting. But there again, we're waiting for things to dry out slightly and we're hoping this coming week might be... Yeah, they're not <laughs> forecasting a lot yeah. of rain Yeah, they, it's, week, it's sort so. of uh, slowing down a little bit. Mm. Ah, but on the other hand, uh, t- you know, it's, you, you don't complain about rain. It's, it's, it's just a joy. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's, well, it's, it's only recently, Jeremy, that I've started to feel confident that I can dig down in most parts of my garden and not hit dry soil because uh, our soil where I am gets very hydrophobic in the summer and because we had such a long dry autumn, mm. um, even up till quite recently I was digging holes to plant things only to find that you'd get down an inch or two and it would be dry under there. So that's really worrying if you're getting well into winter and, and the ground hasn't got moist right through yet. But I think it's probably reasonably good now. Um, after the last rains we had, uh, I think it's actually broken the, the back of it. And so any follow-up rains will hopefully just keep the ground nice and damp from my perspective. So, mm, mm. Yeah. It's great to have, to have this moisture in the soil before we start getting into the warmer weather. Oh, it's yeah. really mm. good. Well, and of course, if you put a thick mulch down over soil that hasn't, in fact, got properly dampened, well, then you actually shed water. You're putting a barrier. Yeah. yeah. So it can actually be counterproductive. That's right. So you do need to have the moisture in there before you put your mulches and things down. Otherwise, it, it will. It'll, it'll make it even harder to get the ground mm. damp. Mm. When do you mulch, Stephen? Uh, I try and get my mulching done by the end of winter, uh, okay. mainly because that also helps to keep the weeds, <laughs> weed growth down. <laughs> Fair enough. So I, I try and get through. So where I've got, if I've got good full compost piles and, and they've rotted down enough, well, then I try and get a layer of that spread, um, which also includes quite a bit of chook and duck poo from our run uh, where the girls work. And, uh, and it's always full of lovely compost worms and all that sort of stuff. So I try and put a thin layer of that down over a bed and then I get the mulch of whatever I'm using, which generally for me is shreddings, because um, we do a lot of our own shredding at home, so I've got a, a reasonably large um, muncher shredder, and so anything that can go through that goes through that, and then that goes back onto the garden beds as mulch, and then towards the end of the season, because I know I'll never make enough of my own, uh, I always ring up one of my favourite tree surgeons in the area and tell Craig if he's got any spare mulch that, you know, he could dump it at my place. Yeah. <laughs> and he regularly does. Yep, uh, great. So normally I can get most of the garden covered or those areas I want to do this year anyway mm. uh, before the the spring really hits because once it really hits and you've got bulbs erupting everywhere and all sorts of stuff it gets so hard to deal oh, with oh it's beds. impossible yeah you, know, you just can't get the stuff in without damaging things and yep so yeah you really got to get it down early enough if you can mm. so uh but you also need that rain under it first that's right mm. exactly right yep okay i'm going to get to some community announcements um first up uh, there's a few things on today if people are wondering what to do uh, now, the Bonsai Northwest have got an exhibition and, st- and sale running this weekend, so obviously today is the second day of that. It's at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, which is at 45 Moreland Street in Footscray. 
10am this morning, running through till 4 this afternoon. Adults $5, children under 15 free if they're with an adult. Uh, there'll be hundreds of bonsai on display or for sale. Demonstrations on both days, 11am and 1pm. And if you'd like more information, 0422 619 641. Now, uh, also uh, on uh, today is uh, the plant sale uh, from the uh, Cranbourne Friends of the Royal Botanic Gardens down at Cranbourne. And uh, this is happening from 10 a.m. this morning through till 4 o'clock this afternoon. Location is Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria, Cranbourne Garden. And uh, there'll be a wide range of Australian plants in uh, tubes and larger pots on sale, um, priced from $3 onwards. So uh, that's on today as well. Now, the other thing that's on today that's always extremely popular is the Heritage Fruit Tree Festival. Now, this takes place down at Werribee Park Farm, and uh, it's starting 10 o'clock this morning, running through till 3 o'clock this afternoon. There'll be uh, rare fruit tree sales, grafts and demonstrations, live folk music, food and wine, face painting, maker's market, uh, talks and tours. Now, it's a free community event. Uh, to, and you can have a good wander around the uh, Werribee Park Farm and the Heritage Orchard. You enter via Gate 5, K Road, Werribee South. Now, there is a gold coin uh, charge for parking and BYO bags for any purchases you might make. Now, coming up uh, down at uh, Cranbourne in the Australian Garden Auditorium is the next... Um, little talk being given for the Cranbourne Friends. It's entitled Afternoon Coffee, Cake and Talk and it's all about the earth moves in mysterious ways with Professor Peter Betts. Now this is next Saturday the 3rd of August, 2 o'clock till 3.30. Now in this presentation uh, Professor Betts will give a 50 minute presentation on his journey from Plummer's Son in East Gippsland to becoming an academic geologist and why earth sciences are significant for society. He'll in illustrate how earth scientists image the earth today and what this information tells us about our planet. He'll conclude with a short synopsis of the dynamic geology that we stand on here in Melbourne. Okay, so uh, as I mentioned, it's in the Australian Garden Auditorium down at Cranbourne. Cost, if you're a member of the Friends Group, $20. Non-members, $25. Students, $10. Now, you do need to book at the Cranbourne Friends website, which is rbgfriendscranbourne, all one word, .org.au, or if you'd like more information, 8774 uh, Now, the other group that's having a winter plant sale coming up are the Friends of Burnley Gardens. Their winter plant sale is next Saturday, 3rd of August, uh, 11 through till 2. And this is being held in conjunction with uh, the pruning workshop they're running out there that day. Now, uh, in the sale, uh, there'll be a selection of native and exotic trees and shrubs, perennials, bulbs, succulents, indoor and food plants. And you can go to their website for the full plant list, uh, the website is simply fobg.org.au. Uh, 
Uh, this will all take place on the lawn behind the student amenity building. Just follow the signs there. Plenty of parking in Yarra Boulevard. Now, as I mentioned, it's in conjunction with their pruning workshop for which bookings are essential. This is being held uh, with Chris England, running from 10 through to 1. Learn how to prune different types of fruit trees, apples, pears, peaches, nectarines, plums and citrus. Learn to keep trees healthy and to a workable height and to recognise the different types of growth and prune for maximum fruit. Now, it's a small group workshop where you have a go under expert watchful eyes. It's suitable for beginners or as a refresher for experienced pruners. Uh, so it's happening on Saturday the 3rd of August, 10 to 1, as I said. Cost, members of the Friends Group 55, non-members 70. That uh, does include morning tea. Uh, BYO clean secateurs. All plant material is supplied. Uh, please wear closed toe shoes. And uh, it's taking place at uh, PSL 6 on the Burnley campus there at 500 Yarra Boulevard. Now, numbers are limited, so you do need to uh, get on to booking. And uh, booking is via try booking. But um, I'm sure that will all be up on the website as well with uh, probably um, a link for you to click on there to book it. Okay, Warringal Orchid Society are also having uh, their next show coming up. Saturday 3rd and Sunday the 4th of August. On Saturday, it's 9 till 4.30. On Sunday, it's 9.30 till 4. The venue is St Sava Community Centre. That's at 212 Diamond Creek Road in Greensboro. Entry is $5, cash only, please. Uh, there'll be light refreshments, potting demonstrations, orchid accessories all being available. And the Melway's map reference there is 11C8. Now, uh, there's a lot going on, actually. You'd yeah, think well, it was spring already. <laughs> yeah, it's heading there, though. It is heading there. It is I mean, heading you know, there. once you get well into August, it feels like spring anyway. It does. So, yeah, so it is getting there. So, yeah. yeah, everybody's getting madly busy. Yep. Just a couple more I should mention. Um, uh, Waverley Bonsai Group have got a bonsai show coming up, 10th and 11th of August. Uh, it's uh, 10 a.m. to 4.30 on the Saturday, 10 a.m. till 4 on the Sunday. It's at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, and I think most of our listeners know where that is by <laughs> yeah, now. I'm sure they do after all these years. <laughs> Corner of Stevenson's Road and Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. Right opposite the railway station. Exactly. <laughs> You've got it, Stephen. Yeah. Admission adults, $5. Children under 16 of age, free. And, of course, there'll be... Um, Continuous demonstrations, meet and talk with top bonsai exponents, an excellent display of mature bonsai, a well-stocked trading area with books, pots, trees, tools, wire, advanced stock, semi-trained uh, and fully trained bonsai trees. And uh, as I say, that's all happening uh, on the 10th and 11th of August. Uh, now, just one more I will mention, and this is a talk coming up for uh, Friends of the Melton Botanic Gardens. And this is a talk by Professor Tim Entwistle talking about uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria's new arid garden. Uh, now, this talk is taking place on the 14th of August and uh, Tim will tell all about the new arid garden extending Guilfoyle's volcano. 
Uh, and, of course, this is very relevant to the Melton Botanic Gardens as uh, they have or will have similar plants. Now, the details, um, as I say, it's absolutely free and there will be supper provided, so that's very generous of them. The talk starts at 7.30, Wednesday, 14th of August. It's being held at the Botanica Springs Community Centre, which is 249 Clarks Road in Brookfield, uh, RSVP to John Bentley, uh, his number 97433819 and leave a message if that's unattended or you can email friends at fmbg.org.au. All right, well it's high time that uh, we opened up our talkback yeah. lines for our listeners. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, do give us a call. The number is 9419 0155 that's 94190155 and of course don't forget that uh, plants we're going to be talking about this morning um, are up on our Facebook yes, page they certainly are okay. I got to work yesterday and took photos of all the things I bought down so I'm getting quite practiced at this you are. <laughs> <laughs> send off Liz all my pictures with the captions and hopefully the it's obvious which way they go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I've got four plants I'm going to speak about this morning at, at some point or another. And so, yes, you can go onto our Facebook page. You can see what the plant looks like. Uh, so it makes it so much easier and it doesn't seem to matter how well you can describe things. People don't always get their head around it. But if you can see an image... And you see the actual botanical name spelt yes, correctly. That's right. And, I do and that's put, really important. Yeah, and, and I make sure they're spelt correctly before I put them up. So I'm sure that, you yeah, do. So if, if there's any errors there, though, I have to say they're my fault, not Liz's. <laughs> so there you go. Now, um, before we start on the first plant, yeah. Stephen, we do need to remind listeners again, I did last week, that um, last time you were on, you were talking about how you were starting up a little <coughs> trial episode mm. of being able to send out plants by mail order. Yes, yes. so uh, I've organised with a, um, a friend of mine who has a strictly mail order nursery because I don't have the facilities or the space or the time to deal with mail orders personally. But if people are interested in buying plants from me and can't get to Mount Macedon, uh, you'll need to ring me. Uh, this will have to be done over the phone because I'll have to describe what the plants are like and whether I've got them at a small enough size to post. I'll also have to then be able to tell you how much it's going to cost in, for the plants and the postage. And I'll also need to take your Visa or MasterCard details over the phone as well so you pay for the plants over the phone. Obviously, I'm not going to be sending out six-foot weeping maples. No. <laughs> or any such things. But, you know, anything up to about an eight-inch pot size I can manage. Um, and... Uh, the orders will be put together and every Sunday my friend will call in and pick them up um, and take them away, package them up and send them off. Great. So you should get them within about six to ten days. Um, there's obviously expenses involved, but I mean if you can't get to Mount Macedon or you're a long, long way away from Mount Macedon, I'm sure the postal charges are probably not as much as it would cost you in other ways to get to me. So, you know, it's, it's possibly worthwhile looking into. Um, and I've had a few orders go out already, mainly interstate ones, um, and people seem to be very happy about it. So Good. we'll just see how it all goes. I okay. mean, it becomes a monster, I might well step back. But at the moment, it seems to be quite manageable. If I get a few orders each week, I can deal with that without too much trouble. And, uh, yeah, so... It's just, but we should say it's just a, an added service 
yes, for um, people mm. who are wanting to buy your plants. And, yeah. of course, the nursery is, is open. And oh, yes, yes, and that's still my main way of purveying plants exactly. is to have people come in. And I have to say, at the end of the day, I'd much prefer people did come into the nursery if they can because they might, might well find that plant they didn't know they needed. Yes. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> over the phone, you're not necessarily going to do that. You're just going to order the things you specifically wanted. That's so, right. Yeah, so my wicked and evil plan is to have you in my nursery <laughs> so that I can sell you all sorts of things you didn't think you needed. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the mail order thing, we'll see how it all goes. Uh, but if you are interested, you'll need to ring me at work. Uh, and I might as well throw the phone number out there as well. So if people haven't got it written down somewhere, uh, it's 54263075. But obviously, I can't take your calls at the moment because no. I'm down here. <laughs> You're so, not allowed to at the moment. <laughs> no, no, that's right. If I was sitting in the back corner taking orders in the studio, that would be a bit inappropriate. It would be. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. So, yes, yeah, so doing a little bit of mail order. Actually, can I man- mention a couple of things that are coming up or things that people might be interested in as well uh, while we're waiting for a couple of calls to come in and then I'll do some plants. Uh, The Alpine Garden Society Victoria uh, Victoria Group has got a special overseas speaker coming to talk, uh, Oron Pari from Israel. He's a botanist, nurseryman, uh, leads botanical tours to parts of the world, uh, owns a specialist rare bulbs nursery uh, in Israel and it's the first time he's visited Australia so this should be a really interesting talk. I've certainly, I'm going to play hooky that day. Um, It's on the 24th of August and he'll be be presenting two talks. One will be Bulbs of the Mediterranean and the other, to be completely different, is Alpine and Other Plants of Chile. Uh, all on the one day. All on the one day. It starts at 12.30, finishes at 5. Uh, afternoon tea is provided. Uh, for members, it's $25. For non-members, it's $45. And if people do want to book, and I know that the bookings are filling because there is a definite limit, uh, they'll need to ring Viv uh, on 97552363. So if you ring Viv, you can make your bookings. And uh, I think that should be a really interesting afternoon, so I'm Mm. looking forward to it. Mm. And something that's a bit of a hoot that I thought I might bring in and mention, it's not actually available at the moment, but will be within the next fortnight, and you can go into your post office and order it. But Australia Post has bought out the 30 Years of Gardening Australia stamp series. And you get two sheets of stamps, and the images on the stamps are all the current presenters, plus Peter Cundall and myself. So um, it's just a bit of a giggle. Uh, but don't expect to be able to go and buy one from the post office, t- you know, this week. But you could if you wanted to get the set. Uh, it's, I think, $23 for the set of stamps. Um, uh, you could go into your local post office and order them if you want to. Uh, well, I can't imagine anybody breaking open these sets to actually use them as stamps. No. Personally. <laughs> but you could give everybody a good licking and stick them on an envelope and send them off to people if you wanted to as well. How so, weird to have a letter arrive and you're on it. Yeah, that would be a bit strange, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say. So, yes, so the 30 Years of Gardening Australia stamp uh, set is uh, available for order now and will be available in your post offices, I think, in about a fortnight. Okay. So there you go. Yep. So there's those. Okay. Now, I suppose we should... One plant. One plant, and then we go on to other things. I'll start with a tiny one. Um, this is, the, for me anyway, the very first of the anemones to flower. Uh, so we are heading towards spring when you start getting the little wooden anemones flowering. Um, this particular one is an Asian one, um, mainly from China, uh, called anemone flaccida. 
and I love it for its leaves. It has these beautiful, heavily cut leaves with interesting markings on the foliage. So it's really pretty in foliage. Uh, the leaves, when they first break through, tend to have a slightly coppery colour about them. And it just gets very simple, single little white flowers on it, which are really cute. And it does start to flower sort of mid to late winter. Um, as soon as you get your first warm day in the spring... It'll completely die down and disappear. Okay. So it's quite ephemeral. Uh, it only grows to a couple of centimetres or four or five centimetres tall in flower. And if you've got a nice, um, well-drained but moist soil in a semi-shaded aspect, uh, it will over a period of time build up quite a substantial colony. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the garden at the nursery, I've got a colony that's probably been in about 10 years and it would be... A metre to a metre and a half across That's now. That's reasonable. Yeah, and, and it's just a lovely, light, airy mm. little anemone. Um, I'm not quite sure why it's called flaccida. The only time it looks flaccid is when it is dying down. Um, <laughs> similar to Nemorosa, except a little bit earlier. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and similar in habit. To yeah, the, similar and, habit and to Nemorosa, although yep. the rhizomes under this are much thicker and more okay. succulent looking than those of anemone Nemorosa. Um, and it's just one of those odd little plants that you rarely ever see around. Um, won't be the easiest thing to grow, particularly if you're in a slightly parched or dryish area. Uh, it could be pot grown, um, so fernery or shade house or something like that. Um, and yeah, just a dainty little thing with its little tiny white single flowers on it. So mm-hmm. there you go. Anemone flaccida. Okay, yeah. great. All right. Jeremy, you've brought uh, in some plants. Well, Let's yeah, two or three. Um, well, we'll start off with the Narcissus uh, Yes scent. Uh, which is uh, uh, one that um, um, well Stephen you were saying uh, most probably is bred by Tasmanian probably bred by Rod Barwick because he does give plants really strange names so I'm taking a bit of a punt here that it's one of Rod's Uh, it's a sort of a but but it is an Australian breeding it's, it's one of the sort of dwarf Tazettery hybrids. Yeah. Uh, um, Beautiful grassy foliage is what intrigues me. Yeah. And, and uh, um, foliage to about, uh, what, about 25 centimetres and small, quite highly perfumed flowers. I wasn't absolutely sure about the perfume when I was checking them last night as I was picking them up from the I nursery. I had a sniff but, this but, morning but, and but I'm not here, sure. sitting in the 3CR in our nice warm studio here, the, the perfume is quite as very marked. Um, I, I imagine this this would be a plant ideal for naturalising in grass because you, you'd actually not notice the foliage at all and, until the flowers pop up and there it is. So um, that's something we're trying to uh, do a lot more with. At uh, Cloud Hill, we're doing a lot of work with our meadows. Okay. And, and um, over the last three months, uh, well, over the last uh, ten years or so, we've been working with them, of course, but uh, over the last three or four months, we've done a lot of work and uh, making much more of that area of the garden mm. um, and looking for meadow plants. I mean, there's, there's, there's any number of, of bulbs in those meadows already, of course, but uh, not too much colour right now. And we're looking for things that look as though they're wild. They're, they're straight from the mountain slope. This is exactly, yeah, so, so this, this is exactly right for our purpose. Um, on the other hand, we also have little cyclamen coom. Now, this is, uh, uh, but one of the silver leaf forms. And my understanding, these were selected by a Dutch uh, nurseryman um, some years back. Um, and he was working with 
the various cyclamen species and um, coom is uh, one of the two most useful for the Melbourne gardens in that uh, they naturalise extremely readily um, and the coloured leaf forms I find just as easy mm. as the uh, species. Um, they're simply selected for the leaves, not for the flowers. Um, we uh, There was a, a gentleman in Perth who was working with them, uh, importing them from Holland many years ago, Keith Keith Money, a mm. uh, little retirement project on the part of Keith, but he was growing all these different cyclamen um, in the foothills of the Darling Ranges oh, in Perth. Right. And if anyone knows Perth, well, th- that climate is just so difficult mm. that uh, anything... But these would survive, yeah, wouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, he was growing them quite successfully. So I was over there a few years, well, about 15 years ago and spotted them and thought, wacko. Mm. <laughs> and um, got various samples. We were selling them for a little while. And um, but the, you don't often see them in nurseries. Mm. The, you see the the florist varieties, which are, are derived from persicum, which I might say is really rare in gardens. Persicum yeah, in itself. True persicum itself, you don't see around very much. I've got a bit of it in my rock garden at home, um, and it is self-seeding. Uh, yep. So it's it's surviving quite well, but I wouldn't say it's it's going gangbusters. No, but, uh, it's a lovely thing, true persicum, because it's very elegant with very fine petals, Absolutely. And beautifully perfumed, spring flowering, spring flowering. Uh, it's a lovely thing, and you know I've made some effort myself to try and get as many different species naturalised in the garden at home as I can, and certainly persicum is managing quite well. But I'd still maintain that hedrofolium and uh, coom. And probably Rapandum, actually. Okay. Uh, probably the three yeah. best doers. Uh, I mean, Rapandum comes up in the driveway. It comes up under the barge boards, under the shed. Um, uh, it just naturalises itself all over the place. Uh, and, of course, it's spring flowering and scented as well. Yeah, and we're finding both Coom and the Hedrofolium uh, popping up all around yeah. Cloud Hill. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> somehow they seem to be spreading out quite a long way from where we planted them initially. Um, but, but we have been working with the coloured leaf forms, so they're quite dramatic. We, mm. we have good colonies of the silver leaf form of Coom underneath our big weeping maples, and uh, they're becoming... Um, uh, very much of a feature nowadays, and mm. flowering right now. Mm. With, when the uh, maples this, this, are bare, which yeah, is really good. Absolutely, nice and they take advantage of the winter sunshine. So uh, all of these species like a spot underneath deciduous trees and shrubs, somewhere where there's a little bit of shade on the um, uh, of the soil, just to keep the soil a little bit cool in mm. the summer. But they're, they're, of course, they're, they're dormant in the summer. And they take advantage of the winter sunshine. Mm. Um, the the one species that we have uh, that uh, likes a little bit of a baking is um, Gracium or yeah, Gracium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that likes one, a bit of a baking. Yeah, yeah, and that one we do. We have a small colony, and that's one of the loveliest of the lot. I find oh. it's just absolutely it's superb. A stunning plant, Gracium, and it, it like a lot of the different species in the genus um, has wonderful variations in foliage patterning yeah uh, and you're right the, it's the foliage that you become I mean the flowers are beautiful they're elegant uh, they're long lasting uh, I mean you couldn't ask for more but when you become a real aficionado on the genus it's all about the different leaf forms and, and yeah, patterns it's a, and yeah it's the patterns in the leaves yeah, you get and Gracum is away. just absolutely glorious we're growing at the foot of a big old arboreum rhododendron mm. uh, but in the spot that um, receives um, summer uh, um, lunchtime sunshine. Yeah. So three or four hours of baking sun. 
comes from Greece. It comes from the eastern Mediterranean and down into the hills around yeah. Jerusalem, I understand. Yeah, so most and, probably and it's quite going a lot to, of the Mediterranean islands yeah, as so well. So most probably it's going to feature in this lecture. Uh, oh, yes, this, in this Oran's lecture. talk. It could, yeah. well, it could well, in which, fact, Which feature. I might add is, is uh, at the Olinda Community Hall. So it's, some, it's about two minutes' walk from... You <laughs> don't even have to drive. <laughs> no, very useful Yes, actually, us. I didn't mention where it was. That was silly of me. But yeah. yes, it is at the Community Hall. So, yep. um, so it's sitting between the rhododendron Gardens or the Linda Botanic Gardens, I should say, now, yes, they and are now, yes. Hill. Um, so, very convenient. Uh, people <laughs> can make a really good day of it. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. All right, uh, just a reminder to listeners if you'd like to join us this morning, do give us a call. The number is 94190155. We have both Stephen Ryan and Jeremy Francis in the studio this morning, so if you'd like to have a chat to them, 94190155. Now, Jeremy, what's the big tall one? Oh, this is one of the clematis, one of the evergreen clematis that uh, in the old books was always extremely rare because it was pretty difficult to to uh, propagate that mandii apple blossom. Okay. And um, done by Alameda, uh, Judy at Alameda. And by golly, she does her clematis well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't have anything else to do, though. Well. <laughs> yes. You can well, always well, rely uh, on a specialist to yes, do the, the yeah. plant material well. But all these very tricky plants, and mm. people become extremely blasé about uh, having, well, nurseries, having uh, these things available. But uh, if you look back in the, the books from 100 years ago, this was as rare as hen's teeth. Mm-hmm. And so it's quite special that we, we, we can... Um, we have access to this. It's quite a strong doer. Um, it, it will cover quite a few metres and covers itself in, well, apple, uh, quite dramatic apple blossom flowers. Wow. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's one, of the, one of the great climbers. Um, just like all clematis, it, it uses its uh, leaf stems to hang on to. So it just needs some light mesh or something rather. It won't climb on a um, smooth surface. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it needs to attach itself to something which it can hang on to as it curls its leaves around the... Um, um, either twigs or mesh mm. climb up in trees quite happily oh yeah uh, certainly with uh, one or two of the others um, Montana we have right over a big Styrex japonica mm. which is uh, up about uh, 12 metres high and uh, and so we, we have this um, Montana flowering up there um, sort of a few weeks after the Styrex is flowering um, so that that's uh, there's a couple of these. There's another one called Snowdrift with white flowers. Well, you haven't mentioned the fact they're also scented. Oh yes, yes, the Amandai have a lovely perfume. Glorious perfume, yeah, which is a little bit rare in the clematis. There's mm. one or two others, but uh, the Amandai is uh, just absolutely. That's a, one of their main features. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And they do flower in absolutely masses. You'll just have these great drifts of flowers because they're clumped, aren't they, Jeremy? Every oh, leaf axle has yep, sort of a exactly, cluster exactly. of flowers. So mm-hmm. all the way along the growth from the previous year. So if you get a metre or two metres of growth in a year, you'll have strands a metre or two metres long of flowers. And they're just beautiful. Mm. I do take my half off to Judy, though. So <laughs> Clematis are not easy to grow in the trees, no. as mm. anyone's ever had a go at doing it. They're a lot of work because they do grow quite quickly. Mm. And when you've got pots, um, well... Um, it becomes yeah, a tangled do, mess. Yes, yes. <laughs> pots within reach of each other. Yeah. Yes, yeah. 
Um, but lovely, she does them lovely glossy green leaves yep. on it. It's too, a good foliage. So, yes, yeah. it is a good foliage. Mm. Yeah, excellent. Okay. I tell you what, that narcissus is getting stronger by the minute. Yeah. Yes, be, being in the think? sort of Tazetta group, uh, if we sit in the studio long enough, my eyes will start to puff up. Because I remember as a child, if I had what we called John Quills back then yep. in my room, the next morning my eyes would be puffed oh. up like a balloon. I uh, have a real problem with early cheer. Yeah. I, I, I cannot be in the same room as no, early no, cheer. No, well, I, I learnt that... Well, as a child, it was quite handy because I could get a day off school just by having a bunch of John Quills in my room, and m- Mum you never knew your what nose was going straight into it. Didn't yeah, you? yeah, that's right, exactly. But uh, yeah, I can't have them in the house. I mean, I don't mind the scent out in the garden. I think that's fine. But yep, yep. In the house, they're a bit overbearing. Yep. <laughs> okay, we'll go to our first caller. We have uh, Pat, who's in St Kilda. Good morning, Pat. Oh, hello. Um, uh, I'd like to talk about gall wasp. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know whether I had a dream about it or whether I heard it on a show somewhere, uh, that if you paint the uh, those nodules with shellac and it stops them from breathing... All right. They suffocate. <laughs> Look, it could work, uh, but by, to be honest with you, doing that, even if it works, it takes just as long as snipping the branch off. In fact, longer. mm and so from a point of view of uh, expeditious treatment, the quickest and easiest way to deal with gall wasp is just to prune the plants back. And, and I do wonder about some of those products, whether they might have some long-term toxicity to the plant. Uh, I mean, it's not a product that is, in fact, registered for that use. Um, it's like when people tell me that they po- poison their weeds with, with fly spray, and I think, well... It's probably as toxic as uh, any of the weedicides you could use. Yes. Um, so I would hesitate to use it. It may well work. I'm not saying it won't. But by the time you get a paintbrush out and a, and a jar of shellac and you start going around and dealing with all of the gall wasps, um, you could have had the tree pruned. Mm. So, yes. Yeah, oh, so I killed mine mm. by pruning it too hard. Well, that's pretty hard to do. Uh, I've cut citrus trees back to just a you can, stump. You can cut and, them and right come, back. And they'll come back again. Um, so, so I don't think the pruning was the reason why it's died. Yeah. Well, the year before, it fruited so full, mm. the little lemons, uh, that I had to give them away to the neighbours. Yeah. yeah. But that, it, that can be a sign that it's um, not happy, actually. Uh-huh. Yeah, see, if a plant it, flowers or fruits really prolifically, mm. it sometimes means that it's... It's having an issue and it mm. thinks, I better procreate. It's uh, trying to survive. Yeah, so it's trying to get seed going so that uh, the next generation can, can take over when it gives up the ghost. So that could be something that's going on. But certainly pruning a citrus tree, the only way you can prune a, a killer citrus tree from pruning, I would have thought, is to cut it below the graft. Uh, and then you'll have understock that will come up anyway. Yep. So for it to die after pruning, I, I, th- I agree with uh, Pam. I think it's something else that's done it and you've uh, connected the two things together, but possibly wrongly. I had a liquid amber. My grandmother planted it Mm. uh, in our place, and the last year of its life, it changed sex. And for the first time in its life, it grew seeds, those Mm. prickly Yes, seed. seed pods on it. Yeah, and then it died. Yeah, well, it was probably doing exactly the same the thing. The same thing. Yeah, it was already on the way out, and it decided I need to set some seed because I'm not going to be around for the for for the next year or two, uh, and so I need to create baby liquid ambers. So that's why it would have set a lot of seed. Can I tell you something else? Yeah. yeah. 
uh, many years ago, I was riding my pony up near the um, Hanging Rock many, many years ago. And up a dirt road, which was dirt roads then, a, a giant tree had fallen down on the side of the road, covered in greenhood orchids. Mm-hmm. I've never seen such a sight. Yeah, well, that's one of those things in life that you can always remember and take great pleasure from because you wouldn't see that sort of thing very often. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, nice to hear from you, Pat. Goodbye. Bye. That number again, if you'd like to uh, give us a call, 94190155. We are running through until uh, 9.15, our usual time slot, so plenty of time for you to jump on the phones and give us a call. Stephen, let's go to another plant. All right, well, we'll go for another white one. Um, this is a poppy relative from China uh, called Eomecan coinantha, and it's commonly known as the dawn poppy. And it's a bit of a problematic plant because if it's really happy where you put it, it can be almost a thug. But it needs to have soil that's almost constantly moist, um, semi to full shade. And it's an evergreen creeping perennial, so it has this sort of creeping root system under the ground. And I'm sure if I was to tap this one out of the pot, it would have rhizomes wound around Mm -hmm. inside the pot. Um, But if you can make it happy, and one way to make it happy would be to grow it in a large pot sitting in a saucer of water for the summer. Um, Its leaves are like water lily pads, Mm. and they sit at different levels. So all the leaves tend to act as an individual, even though you end up with this big mass of it. And I would grow it for its foliage alone. I think its leaves are really pretty. Um, And it produces these single white poppy-like flowers um, on stalks well above the leaves, and you have a succession of flowers that come out on the stem. It never has, or I've never seen it have, masses of flowers but it will get flower spikes on it off and on practically all year round Mm. so there's almost always a few flower spikes on it so i think spring is its main flowering period but even then it never flowers uh in masses and masses so you end up with this sort of sea of of water lily shaped leaves these clean white little poppy like flowers that sit well above the leaves and it's a plant i think that has great poise uh, so it's a really attractive plant in the garden but to make it happy in the garden can be an issue i struggle to grow it in my garden in macedon because most of my garden in macedon gets too dry in the summer and the air me can just um, browns and collapses and disappears and uh, so i can grow it well during the winter spring but to, to get a good permanent colony you need to have somewhere where it gets a little bit of moisture right through the year so you know a fernery or a, a dampish corner somewhere might be worthwhile looking at and it really is a very pleasant plant um, mm. if you can allow it its head but if it's really happy you could spread out and cover meters so, which I have seen. Yeah, yeah. So it can grow really prolifically in the right conditions. Yes, in the uh, Dandenongs. Yes, in mm. areas of the Dandenongs, certainly up on Mount Macedon proper, where our garden is. It's down at the bottom, so we're in dry sclerophyll forest. But up on the top of the mountain, it would be a fantastic ground cover in some of the old gardens up there. In fact, um, if they were looking for something to sort of cover the ground underneath their big rhododendrons and other things. Um, and uh, I think the dawn poppy is a charming plant. Mm. But it does take a little bit of... Uh, thought as to where you would place it so that it will 
flourish. Although it's a reasonable size, it, it, it seems very delicate because it's so open and airy. Yeah, it is. And in fact, it's quite delicate in the sense that it's also very brittle. Um, it's very easy to, you know, if the dog ran through it, all the leaves would get smashed. Right. Um, it'll come back again and yep. do it quite quickly. Yep. Um, and if you're picking them up in the nursery, you've got to be careful that the leaves haven't hooked into each other because you pick it up and five leaves drop off. Right. Um, so it is quite fragile in lots of ways uh, and yet in the right conditions in a garden somewhere you could class it as one of your garden thugs okay um, so yeah interesting plant um, and uh, eomecan means dawn poppy uh, coinantha means of the snow so white um, so the the botanical name is very appropriate for the plant mm. uh, and it is a, a true poppy relative so it's in the same family. Yeah, the flower certainly looks like a poppy of the leaves, yeah. remind me of a, maybe a water lily. Yeah, yeah it's got that um, water lily. But they're scalloped, yeah. um, and, and certainly they're you know, very handsome. Yeah, I think the foliage is lovely. Mm. I would grow it for its leaves even if it didn't flower. Mm. Uh, and I think foliage, to a large extent, is one of our most undervalued assets in a garden. People are inclined to get carried away because something's in bloom, but if the foliage isn't particularly interesting, when the plant goes out of flower, you've got a green blob. So I quite like to pick things for their leaves as much as I do for their mm. flowers. Um, and, yeah, I think Eomecan is up there. And, and it's I, got a pinkish tinge to the stems. Yes, it has. It's got this sort of... Um, yeah, just soft, sort of pinky mauvey yeah, colouring to the, to the leaf stems and also on the back of the leaves when they're, when they're young. Um, and it's a sort of a, it's a slightly shiny but sort of greyish, greeny colour to the tops of the leaves when they're mature. So Ooh. I think it's lovely. It is. So there you go, Eomecan coinanthum, the dawn poppy. Okay, and we've got time for another one. All right, well, let's do one of these plants that I really like but are almost impossible to sell. Uh, this is the winter jasmine, uh, Jasminum nudiflora. Um, and the reason it's nearly impossible to sell is that it grows like that. And people who can't see this on radio, uh, <laughs> it's a spindly sort of Branching, twiggy, branchy yeah. thing. Uh, you can stake it, you can do all sorts of things to it, but it will never, ever present well as a young plant in a pot. Okay. So it's, it, it's one of those plants you've either got to have a big specimen growing somewhere where people can see its assets as a large plant or you've got to be able to do some fairly swift talking to convince people that it's something they should have. Mm. Now, it's yellow flowered, very bright yellow flowers. Uh, it's obviously a jasmine because you can tell by the shape of the flower. It's not perfumed, so don't expect a scent with it. Uh, but its golden yellow flowers are on it for months during the winter. And it has virtually no foliage. It, it, it photosynthesizes by the green in the, in the newer stems. And the way you use it is what's going to make a difference as to how it presents in the garden. It's sort of a, a, a trailing shrub, but it's better used probably as a climber. So if you okay. train it up a wall or a fence, and then it will spill down off of that in a curtain sort of effect, yep. you need to allow a little bit of space because it's not going to stay flat to the fence, so it needs to be somewhere where it can sort of billow down. Um, it can also look fantastic hanging over a high bank. Mm. Uh, I could see this being very useful on some freeways, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I've also seen it used growing up through the limbs of a tree where you've got sort of then a sort of a skirt of it hanging out of the tree. So if you've got a low enough limb that you can get a piece up and over so that it'll hold itself there, right. then you end up with this skirt of long green branches and these masses of yellow uh, flowers on it uh, 
right through the winter months, mm. basically. So it can be a very useful plant, uh, but it's a really hard plant to convince people to plant, even though it's as tough as they come. Uh, you should go to grow it on a freeway, in fact. Um, uh, but it just never presents well in a pot, no matter what you do with it. Uh, I mean, it's not leafy, so you've just got these gawky sticks sticking out everywhere with a few yellow flowers on it. Um, and it's very rare for somebody to come into my nursery, even when this is in full bloom in pots, and go, ooh, <laughs> they generally tend to walk straight past it. It's just one of those plants that never sort of attracts attention. But if I do have clients that have got particularly difficult conditions, like say you wanted to grow something as a skirt up through the branches of a desert ash, I'd suggest this plant and it would probably grow. Mm. So it is pretty tough. And uh, it's very popular in England because it will flower in England even in their bleaker winters than we have so wow. it's one of those plants they can rely on to get a splash of yellow in the middle of winter when there's snow everywhere and it's cold yep. and horrible yep. uh, but of course because we have such a wide range of plants that will in fact do their stuff through the winter months some of these plants aren't sort of used as much here because we're actually almost spoiled for choice we are you know we've got so many things i mean all our with. wattles are, are yeah, coming out now and, and there's there's corias and grevilleas yes. and god knows what else that we don't have in native plants that flower through the winter months yes. uh, and of course there's exotics like camellias and other things that flourish in our generally mm. uh, mildish climate uh, so we've got oodles of plants that we can rely on for winter color so perhaps we don't cherish some of these really ironclad hardy tough things like the english do because uh, we don't need to mm. But yeah, so Jasminum nudiflorum, meaning it's naked when it's flowering, but it's basically naked most of the year. It'll get the odd leaf on it during the summer, right. but it's never really leafy. Okay. Um, so it always is these sort of long rat's tails of green stems most of the time. So there you go. So something a bit different. I personally laughing. Well, you, you, you <laughs> rat's tails some great stems. Yeah, how to not sell a plant? Yes. Isn't it? <laughs> you'd be surprised though. Sometimes my um, less than complimentary uh, descriptions of plants are actually some of the. I think I think it, 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 yeah, yeah, it does come back to to the right position and yeah, and, yes. yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I really do think that that any form of yellow flower in winter brightens the whole. Oh garden up. It's, it's the season when we should be encouraging yellow in yes. the garden. So wattles, daffodils, winter jasmine, there's lots of fabulous uh, things, witch hazel, yep. uh, masses of yellow flowering things for the winter. Um, and yes, they are. They're cheery. You've got a dull day. You walk outside. If you've got something that's dark red, you'd hardly know it was there. That's right. Uh, but yellow always stands out. Yep. So, yeah, so I think it's well worth encouraging in the winter garden. Excellent. Okay, uh, we still don't have any more calls. Everyone Where must be everybody? sleeping in this morning. If you'd like to give us a call this morning, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155. We've got Stephen and Jeremy in the studio, so I know they'd love to hear you. Uh, yeah, anyway, we're running through until 9.15, so do give us a call. Stephen, what's this last one you brought in? All right, well, this is a, a plant that I've always been fond of. Um, uh, it's a North American plant in the Erica family uh, called Leucothoe, uh, Leucothoe fontanasiana. And the plant I bought down this morning is the variegated leaf form of it, which is called rainbow. And it's another plant that I think has elegance about it. Its branches come up and then they arch over. So you end up with this lovely mound with these sort of arching, uh, curving stems. Uh, its foliage is evergreen. Uh, in the case of this one, it's splashed with yellow. Uh, but if you're in an area where you get a fair bit of cold and the plant is out in the open enough, it will also blush with burgundy during the winter months. 
So, you know, it would do that up in the Danny Nongs. It does it up at our place. Um, It may not round suburban Melbourne. Uh, It may not be cold enough in the winter to bring up the burgundy blushes in the foliage. Um, At the moment, it's got its little pink flower buds all over it, which I think is almost better than the flowers, actually. Uh, The flowers are tiny white Lily of the Valley type flowers. Okay. uh, In sprays. So, uh, and... When it finishes flowering, it will send up new shoots through the plant, and at some point or another, the old shoots that have flowered, they become barren. They don't send out new shoots again, so you need to go through it every so often and prune out the old spent um, flower stems. And it'll grow to about a metre and a bit, maybe a metre and a half, um, but you can end up with a mound that will just keep going, because if it hits the ground, it's inclined to root down, so it can just keep moving sideways. So you can end up with quite a broad colony of a given time. Okay. Uh, it does make a great tub specimen because it'll come out and hang over the edge of a tub. Um, and it just doesn't want to be in a hot, dry spot. Um, uh, like a lot of plants in that group, the Ericaceae family, they like an acid soil and not too hot and dry. There's a good green uh, form of it in our neighbour's garden in the ranch you garden just down below Cloud mm. Hill, and it's perfectly positioned on a bank, and you walk below it, and there's this great mass of foliage drifting down towards you. And I think the flowers are quite handsome. Oh, look, they are it's, pretty. It's, one of the, it's, I, I a, it's a pretty it's, handsome thing. Yeah, I think the, the buds for me are... I think more interesting, because particularly at this time of the year, and particularly if the whole plant is as blushed burgundy as well, because you yeah. get this really mm. attractive effect with it. Um, and it's a very small genus. There's only a handful of species, uh, and Fontanasiana is probably the only one that you even vaguely see in this country as a rule. Uh, I've got a little uh, one called Kiski Eye, which is a tiny little thing. It just makes a it'd make a hanging basket subject, actually, with tiny little green leaves. And my stock plant at the moment, all its leaves are dark burgundy. And yep. it has quite large white bells, which are beautiful. Um, so I think it's a nice genus, but there, there is only a handful of species, uh, and most of them are North American. Um, and growing in about three-quarters shade? And yeah. That, yeah. That, that's where I've seen them. Yeah, they, they uh, don't want to be in really dense dark shade. They just don't perform all that well. They become yep. a bit open and leggy and spindly. Um, but then they don't want that hot afternoon mm. sun either. So, you know, perhaps a little bit of early morning sun or filtered sunlight through an open canopied tree would suit it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would certainly look fantastic in a big pot. Uh, I think it really does make a great tub specimen. So, Leucothoe. Um, and uh, that's assuming it's Leucothoe this week. Uh, who knows? Everything's being changed around. I had a, a, a heart start the other day. I decided to check out some plant names, uh, only to find that Abelia has been split into three genera. Oh. Um, and there's a funny little uh, circumpolar plant called Linnae borealis, a little tiny thing with two flowers named after Linnaeus. And one of the groups of, of abelias have been put in with Linnae. There's a shrub called Dipelta unanensis and Dipelta floribunda that have also been put into Linnae. And apparently so is Colquitzia amabilis, the beauty bush, <laughs> is now a Linnae. Uh, and so my, my mind is reeling at the moment, trying to get my head around some of these new name changes that are, are going on with Kew Botanic Gardens at the moment. So, yeah, just to throw everybody into disarray, I can't get my head around Colquitzia being dumped. Uh, we're going to dump ours, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> we had one growing in the shrub borders for quite a few years, and uh, I just, for some reason or other, it just hasn't been performing. It's the oh. pink cloud form. Yeah, and, well, it should. It should. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's flowered, but it's never really flowered very well, and it's just 
turned into this monstrous thug oh, of the Oh, yeah, well, Kalkutia, uh, or Linné, as it's now known, can yeah. get huge. So. Well, well, it's another reason for, to dig it out and get rid of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah look, it's a, I, I, it's a shame because I have seen this, uh, the Kalkutia growing really well and performing well. So I think it's just that our conditions are a little bit too soft and they mm, need slightly harder going yeah. to really put well, on Certainly the, the one I've got in the garden at home is the same clone you're talking about, the pink cloud. Um, and mine has to do it fairly tough. Yeah. Uh, it's in a spot that's got a slight slope so it's really hard to give it any water because it just runs away um, and it would be three and a half metres tall by about three metres wide and it's a cloud of pink in the spring, it's just yeah. beautiful and ours just doesn't perform that well it's, it's too busy growing foliage and, and, and uh, you know, it's happy to yeah. grow and grow and grow and, you know, <laughs> well that's just it and, and it's interesting our, we have our volcanic soil which is so good for so many reasons but it does mean that other plant, uh, there are certain plants that most people really um, find uh, highly successful for us are just a nuisance and turn into thugs and mm. Sadly, it's true for quite a few of the natives. The, yeah. the, the natives expect to be growing in, in fertile soil and yeah. uh, they hit the dandenongs and, and uh, native gardens and dandenongs are actually quite tricky. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. Too much mm. of a good thing. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, oh, it yeah. can happen, I believe, although yeah. I think we're here for a good time, not for a long one. But anyhow, that's just from my own personal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go to our next caller and we have uh, Claire in Chelsea. Good morning, Claire. Uh, good morning. Um, speaking of too much of a good thing, I uh, didn't know the snow poppy, so I Googled it, and the first thing that came up was uh, weed busters in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, well, New Zealand would be a climate where the uh, the dawn poppy or snow poppy would, in fact, in lots of parts of New Zealand, take off and become a pest. Yeah, but, um, but, of course, we don't tend to have a climate here with the same sort of precipitation and uh, yeah, what have you that they have over there. Perhaps there are certain little microclimates that we do have here where it, it uh, could take off. I just thought it was just worth mentioning that it could become... High, it could well, become of course, any plant could become weedy in the right conditions almost. I mean, rhododendrons are a pest in Scotland. Um, you know, you just think about it, there's, you know... Under the right conditions outside their natural habitat, almost any plant um, can become naturalised. And how pesty it becomes is very dependent on the habit of the plant, really. Um, uh, some of these things might get out into the wild, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they become a major environmental pest. They've just sort of naturalised themselves gently outside of their normal habitat. Um, the dawn poppy, I think there'd be very few climates here where it would be likely to actually take off and almost none where it would actually become a serious weed problem. So I'd feel reasonably confident that it would be all right. A dense net of underground rhizomes makes the snow poppy very difficult to control. Not particularly because um, it doesn't go deep. Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. And, the, and the rhizomes aren't big, woody, hard things. They're actually quite soft and easy to pull out. So it should be quite manageable in any garden, I would have thought. Mm. It's yeah, quite, it's quite amazing, the weeds in uh, New Zealand, and there's quite a few of the clematis, which is serious weeds in yeah. New Zealand. Tropiolum uh, speciosum, yeah, the flame creepers, yeah. become uh, a, a weed watch plant in, in New Zealand as well, and most of us here struggle to even grow it. So. And years ago, like in the 70s, I used to work in wholesale, and we... Um, propagated asparagus, asparagoides, and put it in four-inch pots with a little ladder on it and sent it out to sale. Yeah, 
And as an indoor plant, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> but yes, release it into the garden and you've got a serious problem. Yeah, there you go. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah fantastic. Thanks Definitely. for ringing in. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That number again, if you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155. Stephen, what else is happening in your life? Uh, what's happening in my life? Uh, next week I'm going away a bit. Uh, I'm off to Orange on Tuesday morning. All right. Uh, to do some talks for the Garden Club up there. Never been You've to been. Orange. Oh, haven't you? No, no. So I'm quite looking forward to it. The only problem is I've got to get on a plane early Tuesday morning down at Essendon Airport, and my talks on Wednesday. So mm-hmm. I'll be up there all of Tuesday, which is fine because they've got a whole thing raft of things for me to do while I'm there. Uh, I do my talks on Wednesday, but I can't come back till first thing Friday morning. Right. Because uh, they don't do a Thursday flight anymore. Right. So anyhow, so I'll get back home on Friday. And then on Saturday morning, I got on a plane again, uh, and I'm off to the Gold Coast <laughs> uh, because they've got a thing they're call- they've called Botanical... Um, Bazaar, which is sort of a garden slash permaculture slash whatever uh, expo, basically. Okay. Yep. Uh, and they've asked me to go up and do a propagating workshop and also do a Q&A panel thing while I'm there. And uh, I have heard the rumour that Costa Georgiades is going to be up there as well. So, And probably half a dozen other well-known faces will be around the place. So uh, I'm not suggesting all our uh, listeners from here in Melbourne will end up in, in the Gold Coast, but there you go. So I've got a busy week ahead of me. You had, you had. Yeah, so the garden at home isn't going to get any attention this week, and it's actually a little worrying because uh, I have got oodles of jobs ahead of me that I'd like Jeremy, that we'd like mm. to get done before the spring really hits. But anyhow... What well, you can't do everything. No, you can't do everything. Yep, and what yep. I don't get done just doesn't get done, I guess. Yep. Um, but, um, yes, yeah, so I'm quite looking forward to this coming week. It'll be quite exciting, mm. sort of rushing all over the countryside. I so lived in Orid for 12 months. Oh, did you now? Yes. Yeah, well, you and go. we did have snow. Yeah. Yes, I yes, believe it can quite get quite cold there. Snow. So yes. there's no point in me packing my T-shirts to go no, to Orange. No, no, no. So, <laughs> so then to go straight to the Gold Coast. Oh, yeah, well, that'll be slightly different. That's where I could probably <laughs> that'll take That'll thaw the, you out. Yeah, I could take the T-shirts up there. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so I've got a busy week ahead of me, um, but that's all right. It's nice. That, it's sort of a bit unfortunate that these things have both happened in the one week. It would be yes. nice if they were a it bit more spread, spread out. It was spread out a bit. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, you take these opportunities when they come. And uh, so, yes, I'm really looking forward to it. Should be good fun. Excellent. There we go. Yep. Jeremy, um, is Cloud Hill um, doing workshops again or have they gone into hibernation a little bit? Oh, we're doing quite a few things. Uh, We had a little bit of a, uh, Diggers had a little bit of a do yesterday and so I was walking around and showing um, visitors the the garden and talking about, um, well, some of our plans over for the next few years, and I've, I've just mentioned that, the, the work we're doing in our meadows, um, we're doing a lot more with our artwork, um, uh, moving sculptures around, some of Graham Foote's pieces, and uh, thinking of another artist and thinking of Orange, uh, Ian Maher spent uh, years and years in Orange, and I've never been myself, but he's told me all about it. It sounds a fascinating part of the world. Now, Ian Maher is the letter cutter. That yes, we, yes, that he does wonderful have. work. And he's uh, coming in October, and he'll be working on a couple of pieces over several days towards the end of October, and also running a workshop the last weekend of October. I'm desperately trying to think of the dates. I think they're the um, 23rd and 24th, so it's the weekend before the Melbourne Cup weekend anyway. And he'll be running a letter-cutting workshop, okay. which uh, he's done a couple of times now over the years, but uh, not one for quite a few years now. Um, so... 
Um, so these will be running over the Saturday and Sunday. And um, he supplies the tools, he supplies the stone, and, and, and all he needs is enthusiastic people. Not many of them. Uh, they were very small workshops, uh, around about eight or so mm. people. And... Um, Letter cutting is interesting. So, so what we're talking about is carving slate or sandstone with a um, mallet and chisel and carving generally text into slate, although he carves all sorts of things. He carves trees, he carves uh, um, foliage patterns, um, but generally text, so uh, little bits of poetry. I mean, it's actually memorial work, and Ian does do the occasional memorial piece as well. Yes, right. And uh, I've seen a couple of these, so they're they're pretty dramatic. I I, I hope to outlive him, so I won't get him (laughs) to do mine then. (laughs) But uh, but he he generally does big art pieces, so he has art pieces. He lives in New South Wales. He was in Orange. He's now in Braidwood, but uh, there's quite a few of his pieces scattered through the southern uh, highlands of Mm. New South Wales. Um, and uh, we, we have quite a few ourselves. The, the work is, in, is inspired by a uh, Scottish garden called Little Sparta. And if anyone wants to Google Little yeah, Sparta. Yes, so lots of images come up. Yeah, on it, it's it, a remarkable and, place. And that is incredible. And there's another Ian involved with that place, although he, he died a few years ago. This is an Ian Hamilton Finlay. And, um, Little Sparta is, um, a garden made uh, around the farmhouse in the Pentland Hills, not far from Edinburgh, and full of uh, text of poetry. Hamilton Finlay was uh, ah, a fairly unusual character, so some of this is uh, yeah, rather unexpected. So you walk around Little Sparta, and there's a gatepost, um, and uh, of course there's a um, tradition of, of uh, putting... Of, of using the pineapple as a motif in gardens, which goes back to the rarity of, of and especially in Scotland, of, of, of actually producing a pineapple in Scotland <laughs> in that climate. <laughs> uh, but uh, in, the, in Hamilton Finlay's cases, the pineapple is uh, actually hand grenade. So he's got a couple, oh. you walk between a couple of hand grenades. Oh, right. So you, you make of that what you Sounds like. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> Um, but um, Ian Maher actually spent some time with Hamilton Finlay many, many years ago, back in the 70s, in fact. And uh, it was, uh, and, and um, Ian went off and actually taught himself this uh, ancient craft. And it is ancient. It goes back to the Greeks and the Romans, so it's you know, two, 3,000 years old. Mm. People come along to the workshop. Um, you can actually pick up the gist of what's involved in letter cutting over a weekend. Mm. Um, and you, and the average person goes off with something which is good enough to put in their garden as a souvenir of the workshop. Okay. And if they want to persevere for the next two or three or five years, then they, they, they develop their, they, they can build their talents up to the degree that Ian Ma has achieved. And, uh, but on the a steady so, hand, I would think. Oh, yes. And, yes. and, and, and all about Learning to feel the the grain and uh, mm. of the stone as you're working, and um, but it's absolutely enthralling. Ian will actually be working with us for quite a few days, um, leading into that workshop, and and so people can come along and actually watch him working and chat with him. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so that's quite a big thing in October. Mm. Um, I suppose what else we're we doing? Well, we've, we've got a whole series of things coming uh, up uh, this. Well, over the next six, twelve months, 
Mainly because many of our historical plants um, uh, are coming up to their centenary, you mm. see. So we're <laughs> most of them planted in the late 20s, but they would have been a few years old. So from this summer onwards, we're just going to make a bit more of these. So number one, we're going to put some labels on these so oh. to explain them what on earth they are. So uh, big beech trees, which um, came from England back in the late 20s, propagated by Fred Streeter. Uh, his name means nothing to anyone in Australia because we're talking too long ago. But um, 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 Fred, um, dare I say, um, he was given the gig um, by the BBC in 1936. Um, to the, the BBC in 1936 were doing the world's first television broadcasting. Mm-hmm. There were only about 20 television sets. It was all very experimental. They were only doing a couple of hours' worth of broadcasting each day. But if you had been one of the very fortunate people watching television in the, in the summer of 1936, you would have seen Fred Streeter with his gardening program. So he's the world's first... There I say, Stephen. And he propagated the beach that we have. So it's uh, stupid, oh, really. But, but, it, but it, it, uh, of more importance are the plants we have from Japan, from the Yokama Nursery. And, and there, the, uh, the, the really interesting character is Ernest Wilson, mm-hmm. Chinese Wilson, one of the great plant hunters. And so there are, well, quite a few plant hunters, but, but, of the really famous one. Yeah, Wilson's ones, up yeah. there. Wilson is definitely up there. <laughs> yes. He's one of the two or three most famous. Mm. And uh, spent a lot of time in China collecting plants in, in, uh, on, the, um, on the edge of the Tibetan Plateau in China, but also quite a bit of time in Japan at the end of the First World War. So, again, we're going back a long way. And um, Chinese Wilson, Ernest Wilson, sent Karim Azaleas to Teddy Woolrich back in 1922, so they're the earliest plants we can put a date to, and you can actually see those in our neighbour's garden in Rangeview, uh, those actual plants. Um, but Ernest Wilson spent a lot of time working with the people at the Yokohama Nursery, which is um, not, not, not your average nursery. It was more of a... Uh, they set themselves up as a kind of cultural showcase. Mm. So it dates from the beginning of the Meiji period, uh, so the 1870s, 1880s, um, the late 80s really the 1880s I should say so we're talking 19th century yes, here yes. Um, and it, it still operates although it, 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 it operates more as a conventional nursery now um, but uh, during the, the um, 1890s through the 1920s it was mainly sending plants to places like the Arnold Arboretum in yeah. America and Kew Gardens in London I imagine some material was sent to the bot gardens here. Quite possibly. Yeah, I need to check on that. But uh, but the thing is, because of the connection with Ernest Wilson, uh, a batch of plants ended up in the Dandenongs. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so, surprise, so surprise. There again, yeah. they are sort of plants that we're working with at Cloud Hill. So it's all... We badly need to put some labels on these things to yes. explain to people oh, that are yes. walking around. So that's the one project that's coming up this season, uh, this spring. So we'll be doing that here. I mean, they're great stories. 
So mm. it's, it's it's really ideal for the public to get yep. to hear some yep. of these stories. And yeah, these are they're all of them significant. So around our meadows, for instance, we've got a magnolia denudata, which is just absolutely colossal. There's Negianthus perilatus, mm. which a stunning shrub. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, ours is about as big. I've seen a photograph of a big one in Japan, but uh, this one is it's not far behind, mm. and. Um, uh, the Nico Maple, which I hesitate to pronounce, Stephen. Would you like to wrap your... What, Nicoensis? Nicoensis. Or is it Maxima There's actually a few of those. Sort of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the latter. It's the latter. It's the latter. Yes, yes. Maxima Oxiana. Which is probably the... inappropriately pronounced if I happen to have been related to the person it was named after. They'd probably pronounce it in a, a quite different way. Uh, but that's the best I can do. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just don't try. I just stay with the Nico Maple. But, yeah. but we have a, a fabulous Nico Maple. Mm. <laughs> and again, on the edge of the meadows. So this yeah. whole area, we've, as I said, we've been... Uh, putting a lot of effort into and Fantastic. over the last uh, little while. Yeah, Good. great. Okay. We oh, we've got get some to calls a couple again. of callers. Um, first up, we've got uh, Pat in St Kilda back. Good morning, Pat, again. Look, uh, I wish I had learned Latin at school instead of French. <laughs> <laughs> um, my star magnolia in the backyard, Yeah. it only blossomed one blossom on it. And something must be wrong somewhere. How old is it? Oh, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Right, so and it's, it should it, be blossoming. Yeah, it should be blossoming. Is it getting plenty of light? Oh, I couldn't say. It's behind the, uh, the shed mm. next to next door's fence. Yeah, well, my gut story. feeling is it may not actually be getting enough light if, so it, if, if it's a, not flowering. Yeah, is there a tree or something rather that might have grown up over the top of it? Uh, anyway, um, why is it that most flowers have five petals? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that question. Um, it's it's, it's true. not actually true that most flowers have five petals. There are actually petals of quite a lot of different things, but a lot of common garden plants do in fact have five petals. Um, and I have no idea. It just works symmetrically for the plant. I don't know why these things happen. Um, uh, but there's certainly plants that have four petals and there's plants that have two petals and there's plants that have uh, multitudes of petals. Um, yeah, the iris, uh, they're all in threes. The, yeah. the roses, as soon as you say five, I think of the rose family and that's the colossal family and they're all in five. Yeah, they tend and to it be does in five. It, that, that includes the fruit trees, mm. uh, all, the, yeah. all the stone fruit yeah. trees. Uh, Dawn poppies are in four, I and just if, checked. If you, if you want to think about a, a tree which makes the connection between roses and fruit trees, the medlar. Mm. And uh, I'm sure you've you got one yes. or two of those around. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and you look at a meddler and, and the fruit of the meddler, it looks like a rose hip. Mm. And that's not coincidental. Mm. Oh, by the way, the meddler's now been put in crita- into oh. Crotagus. Uh, well, <laughs> oh, Crotagus. Yes. Well, Crotagus. Crotagus Mespillus, it is yeah, now. Well, the Crotagus also related to the rose. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't, yeah. isn't, the, isn't the, uh, the apple tree related to the rose? Yes, yes, it, yes is. it is. It's in the same Absolutely. family. They're in the yeah. rosaceae family. And they do have five petals. But I just checked my dawn poppy and it has four petals. Ah. So there are plenty of things that don't have the mandatory five petals. And I love Copper Beach. Oh, oh yes, yes, a beautiful yes. tree. Gorgeous. Copper, Copper yes. Beach. Thank you. Okay, That's thanks, a pleasure. Pat. Bye. Right, next up we're going to, uh, I think it's Mim in Norumbina. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Uh, it's actually Bim. Oh, Bim. Bim. <laughs> okay. 
fine. People get it wrong, though. It's all right. Um, yeah, I was just bringing up about some plant recommendations. Um, I've got a, a particularly troublesome bed on the side of my driveway, but it's um, in a southerly aspect, but it gets a blazing hot sun in late summer mm-hmm. for a few hours. It's, um, I've currently got a Gordonia tree growing there. And, yeah, I'd like something to plant in the sort of understory that would cope with those conditions. I've tried a few things, but, yeah, um, you know, lost a lot of plants. And, yeah, just wondered if you might have some ideas. Hmm. Um, well, from my perspective, I would always try and get some local information. If you've got a good local nursery around you, I would always call in and have a chat to them about it because they may well have some specific plants that they would recommend for your particular growing conditions. But if it gets the hot afternoon sun... Um, yep. There's a whole range of native grevilleas and other shrubs that should grow. Um, yep. Some of the Mediterranean-style plants uh, would be fine, I would have thought, if there's enough room to plant things like cistus, uh, rosemaries. Yep. Um, there's a, a shrub from uh, the Mediterranean called Buplurum, which grows and copes the heat remarkably well and has greyish foliage and heads of tiny green flowers sort of in an umbel, sort of a, a carrot-like. Yep cluster of flowers it's tough as um you could try some of the osmanthuses um, yeah i was going to suggest osmanthus so and, mm-hmm. and camellias sanqua um, yeah. how many hours of sunshine does the this spot receive? Uh, so it's sort of around i guess around um two or three o'clock Right, yeah. So, the so, rest of the so day. those cool shade right through until the 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 heat of the day, mm-hmm. and then bang, it's at the yeah. temperatures yeah. jump by twenty degrees as far as the plants concerned. Yeah. And that happens day after day. Yeah, look, the osmanthus uh, are, are pretty amazing. Uh, we've we've got them growing in almost constant shade all all the way through to full sun, and they will quite happily deal with full sun and so yeah. they're a plant that will deal with that temperature jump mm. day by day you could so try some of the shrubby hypericums too as a possibility yeah, it's, yeah you, you're looking for plants that tolerate both shade and, mm. and sun yeah, and, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, that, that's that's a really interesting spot you got there Yeah, yeah. I, dare I say um, uh, how good is the drainage um, well, I've got a problem with the soil as well. It's in the sand belt, so it's got that hydrophobic. Okay. Do you know I've actually... I've, I've worked in a lot of... Um, I've actually grown tree peonies in a spot way. like that, you know. Mm. Uh, that, that seems, that's counterintuitive. But the tree peonies, you, you say the sand, that's, they need free drainage. And yeah. I've, I've grown them on the west side of a house, uh, yeah. so in a shade all the way through until one o'clock and then bang, sunshine. Yeah. Um, yep. So <laughs> that that's that's uh, that was a little bit of a gamble, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but often things work when you don't expect yeah. them to, and yeah. so you yeah. don't necessarily want to cut anything out that you haven't already tried. Uh, yeah. Uh, until yes. you have, because I, I, you know, we can give you all the information in the world about what the perfect conditions to grow something are, are yeah. in, but. Often a plant will perform in place in ways and places you don't expect, just despite you. Um, yeah. I remember years ago, an elderly lady bought a plant from me called Lapageria, Chilean bellflower, which yep. is a very delicate climber that likes a, a cool, humid conditions. And yep. I gave her all of the growing conditions that a Lapageria should need. She lived in Camberwell, yep. um, and I saw her about three years later, and she said, "I'll come round for a Christmas drink uh, and have a look at the plant I bought from you." And I thought I was yep. still alive. I was excited, and I arrived yep. there, and here it was sitting in full sun. 
sun in a water well pot by the swimming pool Blimey. and flowering its damn head off. Uh, that, 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 that yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't even bring myself to tell her she'd done all the wrong things because <laughs> I didn't want to jinx her. It was doing superbly and I couldn't believe it. That's good to know because I actually bought two from you and I found a good spot for one of them and I couldn't do that. So I might yeah, well, I'm not suggesting a water well pot by the swimming pool, but I have seen it done. But it isn't what you would, in fact, recommend. So yeah. you can never tell. No, they yeah. come from forests uh, uh, south of Santiago in Chile and they, yeah. they, they, they expect shade. Yeah, they do. A, a I've seen them growing there. And yeah. There was a notorious story, going back to Teddy Woolrich, his little cottage which I might add is still exists, and it's now a luxury B&B in our next-door neighbour's place. But at one stage, it was covered in a lapidaria, and after Teddy died, the property was bought by uh, someone who, well, spent two years digging up all these amazing plants everywhere and selling them, and not, not really treating it like a nursery at all. Yeah. And, and gradually, all the Felix. special plants... I wasn't going to mention the name. I only mentioned a Christian name. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Felix. But I remember Felix very yeah. well. And, yes. and uh, anyway, uh, he had a couple of people helping him, and they uh, uh, they arrived uh, one morning um, in um, early spring or so, and uh, the enormous lapidaria that covered half the cottage was suddenly gone. And they stood there horrified, and you know, before work began, they, they sort of cornered him. What's happened to the lapidaria? And he said, "Oh, boring plant. Dug it out, got rid of it, burnt it." Oh, and dear. they 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 resigned on the spot, and that was the end of the nursery. So that so that little action of Felix's and <laughs> digging up the lapidaria actually was the final act of this rather famous nursery. Yeah. Mm. Yes, that wasn't me. a particularly good era. No, unfortunately. No. Felix was a bit notorious. I, mm. I, but yes, I... <laughs> I'm assuming Felix went to God quite some time ago. <sighs> I didn't meet him once or twice. Yeah, well, yeah, I remember and, him when and, I was a lad. And, so he... it's an interesting character, yeah. but I heard of when we first arrived in the Dadlogs... Uh, Mm, has one or two stories about Felix. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. He was a, a, an interesting eccentric character in Portugal. Extremely eccentric, yeah. and, and, and his background was absolutely amazing. I'll have to tell you about it later, Stephen. Yeah, the, that sounds like the, a story there was, I there need was, to hear. There was a reason for it. Yeah. He had a difficult Second World War, okay. Felix. So, Bim, have we uh, given you yeah, any help no, that's there? great. Maybe I could just quickly ask, are there any of the osmanthus that you'd sort of recommend as far as uh, smaller, smaller growers most probably so yeah. Delavei. There's a couple yeah. of uh, forms of that. Yeah, there's uh, that uh, heaven scent, heaven pearly scent, gates, and, yeah, and pearly things gates. that would probably be good. Uh, most okay. of the heterophyllas, yeah, are good, right? and, and there's a lot of heterophyllas. There's yeah. about six or seven of them. They look a little bit like hollies, uh, a number yep. of them. Um, and they, the thing about the osmanthus is they, most of them have um, perfume flowers. Yeah, lovely. And things. some of them have stunningly. Uh, some of the one or two of them have the uh, as good of perfume as uh, you'll find in any plant, and yet they are very, very tough and easy. Uh, we actually use them for hedging, mm. so you can chop them to pieces yeah. as oh, much good. as you very like. Very useful group. Mm. Right. Great. Okay. That's fantastic. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. And uh, next up, we have Alice in Brunswick. Good morning, Alice. Hi there. Um, I am after some recommendations. Um, the first is for uh, my neighbour's got a really big ironbark gum tree, so the ground on my side is very dry, 
um, and I can't really get many plants to grow there and it's also in full shade and I was wondering if there's anything that can grow there but will also flower in summer. Mm. Flowering in summer, you might be pushing your luck, uh, but a couple of plants that will grow in dry shade like that. Yeah. Uh, as a smaller plant, uh, the butcher's brooms, ruscus, uh, which are grown basically as foliage plants, but they'll grow in the driest, darkest shade you can find. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a series of them. There's also a relative of it called Danae, D-A-N-A-E, which is sort of an arching evergreen shrub. It gets tiny white flowers followed by orangey-red berries, but again, it's mainly for its foliage. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're looking for a bigger shrub uh, that will flower, but it's actually spring flowering, late spring flowering, uh, a thing called Machaia Bella. How do you spell that? Uh, M-A-C-K-A-Y-A, Bella, B-E-L-L-A. Uh, it has trumpet-shaped flowers that are white with purple veining through it so that from a distance the overall effect is mauve. Mm, and they okay. have a very dark, glossy, almost camellia-coloured leaf. Um, and Micaiah Bell is a South African thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And it can grow to easily a couple of metres tall and easily as wide, but it can be pruned and shaped um, straight after flowering if you wish to do so. Even so, in those conditions it can get that big? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, so it can be quite a large shrub and it will cope with incredibly dry conditions and incredibly shady conditions. Okay, um, and could you spell the ruscus for me? R-U-S-C-U-S. S-C-U-S, okay. Great, thank you. So and there's a few have... ideas. Yeah, no, that's that's really good because it's been it's becoming a bit of a cemetery in that corner. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also um, wondered if you could let me know of some smaller kind of trailing flowers, ideally some, uh, flowering in spring or summer because I've got a raised garden bed and I want to get kind of a trailing effect all along. So this um, is yes, semi, the, semi-shade. Semi-shade. What, the plectranthus perhaps? Or the... Yeah, I was actually thinking more th- about things like Lithodora, uh, uh, mm. the blue-flowered sort of Borogenaceous, used to be called Lithospermum, uh, and it trails and has electric blue flowers on it, mm, uh, okay. and it's quite pretty, uh, and uh-huh. in semi-shade... Uh, it should work all right. It's reasonably tough, that plant, I find. Can it deal with um, the sun in summer? You know, the it will deal with sun. some. It wouldn't want the hot, hot afternoon sun if we get a 45 degree or with a howling northwesterly. Um, but it would cope with a fair bit of sun as long as its roots are in amongst rocks or behind a wall or somewhere where the roots are kept in the shade a little bit. It should be fine. Okay, great. Thank you. How would, how would the, um, the hanging rosemary go? Yes, you could actually mm. use the trailing rosemary. That's another good thought. And it's okay. a very handsome plant. And that'll bring the bees in. and mm. Yeah, because yeah, so, that's yeah. what I want. Is the, I'm trying to get more bees. I mean, I'm sure you've noticed it feels like there's less and less every season. Yeah, mm. yeah, so, yeah so rosemary is certainly a great bee attractant plant. Oh, gosh, so, yes. Um, and, uh, yes, if the powers that be are to be believed, it's now a salvia. But anyhow... Um, uh, the Selvia study group don't like the idea of rosemary being dumped in with Selvia. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the trailing ones particularly would be very pretty. So, mm. And another plant that's not overly showy in flower, but it would be as tough as there's an evergreen trailing cotoniaster called Cotoniaster damari. Uh, has great glossy foliage. It will follow the contour, so it'll 
go out over a wall and then spill straight down. Mm-hmm. Um, has white flowers in the spring that the bees just adore. Um, there'll be thousands of bees over it when it's in flower. And then it gets mm. small red berries on it, which are quite pretty. And it doesn't seem to have any particular weedy potential like some of the other cotoneasters do. Uh, mm. I certainly haven't found it self-seeding itself all over the place. Um, mm. But um, it's a, a good bee attractant plant. Okay. And is that C-A-T-O-N-I-A-S-T-A? Cotoniaster, is that how you spell it? Cotoniaster, E-R on the end. Uh, So cotton Easter. Okay, easy. And Dameri, D-A-M-M-E-R-I. It would be the best one for the purposes you want to put it to. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. That's a pleasure. Have a good day. Bye. Okay, bye. You should regularly hear it pronounced cotton Easter. It is spelt that way. (laughs) Yeah, excellent. Uh, we're just waiting for a couple more calls to come through. They're on the way. Yep. Um, so apart from uh, particularly the Ian Marr, um, are you having a, are you planning um, a sculpture exhibition in the garden again this year? Um, well, not per se, I suppose. Uh, we're just making a lot more of the work that we have, and especially Graham Foote's work, uh, which we've had sitting around the restaurant up until now, but we've moved Loacher O'Donoghue to a much better spot, and we okay. moved Janet Holmes Court to a much better spot, and we had a go at moving Dame Elizabeth Murdoch yeah, to a better spot. How did you go spot. with that? Yeah, <laughs> we got her halfway to where we wanted it well, to be. Well, weren't you in, in yeah, conversation day, with... Um, with the garden, with, with Dame yeah, Elizabeth's right. garden? Yeah, we, we did have a chat to Crewden Farm uh, about uh, whether or not they would like her down there, but the, they already have uh, one um, bronze of her. Oh, okay. And they decided no. So in that case, well... Um, she was a pretty case, stubborn old bird, was Dame Elizabeth, so oh, that's yeah. probably why you can't oh, yeah. get her down the garden. <laughs> she doesn't want to go. Well, <laughs> they're, they're quite substantial pieces. It's life-size, oh, and, and, yeah, and, so and it's terracotta. Heavy. Well, it's not terracotta. It's, sorry, it's, it's stoneware. It's yeah. actually... so. It's 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 pretty big and heavy and and uh, we we need serious gear to move yeah. her. <laughs> so she'll end up. Uh, we're hoping to move her to uh, a spot just near our tricolour beach, and and we'll use the trunk as of the tricolour beach as a kind of a backdrop. It's quite a good. It's a pretty good likeness and in yeah. a soft uh, in a sort of a creamy stoneware um, done when she was one hundred plus. Uh, Few weeks <laughs> done by life, uh, done from life by yes. Graham and fantastic. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're, they're fairly important pieces. So, so we we deserve, uh, yeah, we we or rather we we've obliged we feel to make the most of them. Oh yeah, yeah. So, yeah one so so it's quite a big deal to 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 make sure that she ends up in the right spot. Mm. <laughs> so we're doing that. We're, our twilight events, we're obviously um, um, just putting those together at the moment. We, we have Ozak um, um, coming and putting on Shakespeare in uh, the, the long weekend in March this summer. Oh, so they're okay. putting on Twelfth Night, so that's slightly out of... <laughs> Twelfth night should be closer to Christmas, of course, <laughs> but uh, but on the other hand, the long weekend in March works rather nicely. And they're talking with a, um, well, having to do a big charity event in December, but we're just, I'll know by tomorrow evening whether or not that's going to work out. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, that's, so we're, we're hoping, exactly hoping, hoping to work in with the Royal Children's Hospital. So if this comes to pass, it'll be 
quite a big deal. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and so something uh, in the weeks leading into Christmas. Excellent. Mm. Excellent. Okay, let's go to our next caller, and we have Ron out in Doncaster. Good morning, Ron. Yes, good morning. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a, uh, a vegetable plot which I'm happy to prepare for spring planting, and uh, I've rather neglected it in recent times due to a reason, and um, I found when I went to uh, look at it after about two months, it's been covered in a very thick, fine, uh, soft weed, which is all intertwined, and um, <laughs> it's more than I can use to make it into uh, weed tea. Um, so I was wondering, uh, and it's very easily removed, it's very fine roots, um, very shallow. So I was wondering, is it possible that I could use this uh, trench this just like you would with winter greens and you know, add a bit of lime, dolomite lime to it? Uh, or is there a danger that I could be sowing um, a, a weed problem? Uh, if you bury it deep enough, uh, the existing pl- uh, weed growth will rot down, so you could use it like a green crop. But, of course, mm-hmm. when you turn the ground over, you're likely to lift seed up from deeper down, uh, mm-hmm. so there will still be weed issues. So once you start to plant, you'll probably, for a while at least, until your vegetable garden settles down into place again, you'll need to keep weeding. Because you've let it go, there's obviously a sort of weed banks uh, or a seed bank of weeds there, uh, and so it will take time to get on top of it. But, yeah, there's no reason why you shouldn't dig it under. I'm not quite sure what it is. As long as it hasn't got creeping rhizomes or something, you know, uh, those sort of weeds you need to get out. But if it's just mm. a fine-rooted annual weed of some sort or another, yeah, no reason mm. why you can't dig it under. Yes, it's, it, I think it starts off with lipers, very, very fine, small, round leaves, so thick they're like a moss almost. Yeah. Uh, and then it comes up from there, not very deep. Yeah. Uh, that's the point, that these roots would only be 50, 60 mil deep down, I suppose, and since they're very easy to pull up, yeah, fork yeah, up. Well, really. dig it under. Uh, it, mm, I, I yeah, don't think long term it's going to do any harm one way or the other. Um, yeah, so yeah, I would, I would dig yeah. it. Mm. There's so much nitrogen there; it's so green and thick, and you know, up around about um, 250, 300 mil high almost. But yeah. it's so yeah. thick and intertwined, it just bunches up. And I thought, gee, this is too good to throw in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I certainly wouldn't bin anything. I mean, anything that can be composted or mulched down in one way or another uh, mm. is far better to be reused back in your garden oh, than just stick in the in the mm. green no, recycling I bin. No, I was more worried. About the, as you say, the, the reseeding, I'll not be burying Yeah, well, you're going to get reseeding anyway in a vegetable garden because there's a seed bank there. Every time yeah. you turn over the ground, you're going to lift seed to the top again. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, yeah, that's going to happen anyway. Right, okay. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll certainly uh, give it a go. Okay, good on you. Okay, bye. Bye. Right, moving on, we have uh, Jan in Richmond. Good morning, Jan. Good morning, everybody. Um, look, I just want to ask you about, I've got pineapple lilies. I don't know the botanical name. Mm-hmm. I've had them in the same pots for a couple of, oh, well, a few years, and they really have clustered and thickened too many, and I didn't get many flowers last time, so I'm just wondering when's the best time to, can I move them now, and what sort of soil can I use? Are you going to be potting them again? Uh, yes, I'll put them in pots again, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Well, it's a eucomus. Yeah, eucomus, yeah. 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 And Um, now's a good time. Yeah, they're they're pretty uh, tough. Uh, Just divide them and and, uh, most probably you'd uh, uh, divide one pot into three pots, something like that. Yeah, could make probably about four pots. Yeah, give them away or spread them around. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what's the best, any 
good potting mix or... Yeah, just a good potting yeah, mix. Yeah, and what's the best thing to feed them with? I mean, you know... Well, general purpose fertiliser, they're mm. fairly tough. We, we grow ours in the ground, uh, just oh, right. at the, uh, towards the front of the borders. Yeah. And, um, um, they're, they're fairly reliable perennials. Oh, um, they're, they're pretty straightforward, really. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah so, so you can be quite tough with them. Yeah, the reason I keep them in the pot is when they flower, I can bring them around, you know, move them around the house where I can see them because I don't have a lot of land in Richmond. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I actually often use just a slow-release fertiliser when I pot up things like that because then if you've used a, a, a six-month sort of one of the Osmocote type products, yeah. um, uh, that will last them right through the next growing season if you want to. Oh, good. Okay, I'll do that. Then thank you, and I'll do that when I transplant them. I'll pot them straight Put the slow-release fertiliser yep. straight yeah, away. Yeah, feed them when you pot them up. That yeah. way you can just sort of ignore them then. Yeah. Um, and Jeremy's right. They're tough old things, the, yeah. the, the pineapple lilies. They are beautiful too. Yeah, though. and they're a lovely yeah. thing in flower. Yeah. They're, they're sort of a, a different-looking flower. Yeah. So yeah. they make an interesting contrast. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for your help. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Right, and uh, we're off to uh, Anne in Heidelberg. Good morning, Anne. Uh, hi, Pam and everyone else. Um, what I'm ringing about is a garden bed where there's an apricot tree and a fig tree. And I was thinking I'd like to grow some low growing, um, either indigenous plants or, um, perennial flowers that will attract the bees. Mm-hmm. So I'm just interested in those two categories, just if you can suggest stuff. Well, there's plenty of semi-shade-loving salvias um, that would be good to attract all the bees and the birds and things into the garden. Um, mm. And, I mean, there's hundreds of them. <laughs> <laughs> and there's hybrids being produced all the time. So you can get short ones, you can get tall ones, you can get ones that you have to cut down in the winter. You can have evergreen, shrubby salvias. I mean, there's a whole range of different salvias, and they're great value plants. So many of them have beautiful scented foliage. Lots of them have quite dramatic leaves. Um, and you can, can I get... just interrupt for a minute? So as a north-facing garden, mm-hmm. and in the afternoon, it's still quite a strong sun in the summer. Yeah, yeah well, the oh, they'd, are fine. they'd be fine. They're fine. I mean, a oh, lot okay. of them are shade-loving. Some of them are more sun-loving. So it's really just a matter of selecting the right ones. Mm. Mm. And, and I find a lot of the uh, salvias attract blue-banded bees too. Yeah. Oh, okay. I saw a few in my garden last year. So what's the best place to buy the salvias? Mm. Well, most nurseries have a few, yeah. Uh, um, and then there's a then there's a people like David society. Glenn at Lamley yeah. Yeah. has the, a good selection. Can I make yep. a suggestion? The Selvia Study Group uh, regularly go to the big plant expos. Uh, mm-hmm. They'll be at Mount Macedon for the um, expo at Bolabek in uh, the first weekend in uh, October, and they'll be at um, Fernie Creek. Uh, yeah, I think they're in, probably going to October. Yeah. I think Towards the end of October, yeah. they'll have their store there. And the salvias. Is that you the think Fernie Creek Flower Show? Is it? Yeah, the Fernie yes. Creek Flower Show. So you think of the American, the sagebrush plains. <laughs> those are salvias, and the, and you've, you've, you're worrying about heat. They'll take any amount of heat. Mm. Those, what, those, those particular so species. Can you say that name again? 
Well, I'm just making the point that they they will take very tough going. Uh, the, uh, the American sage, the sage, the Rockies, uh, the, the, the the salvias dominate those ecologies. Mind uh, you, that you find them in the forest areas in South America as well. So they, it's, yeah, a it's a matter of selection and, and, yeah. and just selecting the ones. And that that's why if you go garden. to something like that where the salvia study group are there, they can advise you which ones like shade, which ones like sun, how big each uh, of them grow, okay. what colours the flowers are going to be, whether they've got foliage, how to manage the plants, whether they need pruning down or whether they're more shrubby ones that you leave up. Um, you get all the information you could possibly need and then pay a pittance for the plants you're buying. Exactly. Oh, uh, okay. Do they have a website where I could actually email those questions? I you know? have no idea, but I, you could certainly go in and I would Google Selvia Study Group and see if something so comes, comes up. up. Yeah. All right. Thank you. And then the other thing, if I wanted to plant indigenous plants, low-growing indigenous... Well, now, there's a difference between indigenous and native. If you're going to plant indigenous plants, you need to talk to somebody local who knows what grew in your area. uh, Uh, Like the the Latrobe... Indigenous yes, nursery yes. then. Yeah, you need to go to one of those sort of places because they will oh, know okay. the plants that were indigenous to your area. If you just yeah, mean native, then I suggest you take a visit up to Karanga Native yeah, Nursery. Yeah, Karanga Native Nursery would be a great place to go and they will have a range of corias, small grevilleas. Corias would go well. Uh, all sorts of native plants that will grow, but they're not necessarily indigenous natives. No. They will just be Australian natives, which is a different yeah. they'd, they'd category. Quite, they'd quite happily chat and let you know. They, they, they'd have a range of some of the indigenous plants mm. as well. Yeah. But they, they uh, sell uh, plants from all over Australia. Yeah. Uh, but if I get indigenous to this area, they should be survivors, shouldn't they? Yes, except, of course, because of global warming. You know, everybody's sort of forgetting that our climate is changing. And so even in lots of natural habitats, the native plants are actually struggling. Um, so mm. it's not a foolproof <laughs> technique because of the way the climate is changing at the moment. Uh, mm. I mean, if you come up to Mount Macedon tomorrow, you will see a whole forest of eucalypts that have died on the side of mm. Mount Tyrone. Uh, mm. big eucalypt trees that have been there since the droughts of the 1960s um, and there's great swathes of them that have just collapsed and died and the Pinus radiata seedlings that have come up over that mountain are still green and healthy mm. and they're from North America. We, we went another out to talk about this, Stephen. It's yeah. slightly yes, frightening. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, yes. but it, you know, just saying Indigenous doesn't always work. So you've just got to keep that in the back of your mind that yeah. it's, uh, it's not... Ne- and, of course, Indigenous plants still have their habitat within the environment in which you live. So there'll be Indigenous plants from your area that would still need shade. There would be Indigenous plants from your area that want full sun. There'd be yeah. bog plants that were Indigenous to your area. That's so, right. So... It's more about fitting the plants to the environment you've got necessarily than, than trying to just plant something that's indigenous. Mm. One, one very straightforward thing, and Stephen mentioned this earlier, is simply to go for a stroll around the surrounding streets and look for spots similar to the area that you have in your garden and see what's doing well. And then, dare I say, mm. go up and knock on the door and... Ask them, the people what, it ask, ask them yeah. what it is. Of Thank course, as, as, a, as a purveyor of rare plants, uh, I don't necessarily want everybody to go around and plant the same things everybody else in the street's got, but Jeremy's right. Things yeah. that are working in the area would then, you know, more or less be likely to be able to trans, uh, transpose into your garden as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 it's something I do when I'm doing consultancy jobs. I just have a quick walk around mm. and spend 20 minutes just coming to grips with what's doing well in that particular soil type. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, wonderful, great inspiration. Thanks so much. And it's a, a wonderful pleasure. show. Okay, bye. Bye.
goodness. It, it is 19, uh, 9.14 already. Yes, I mean, yes, free. yes. We've just about run out of time. We should remind listeners it is National Tree Day today. There Good. are a Buy lot a tree. Of, <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But there are also a lot of activities around mm. the various suburbs. If you can, you can join in and, and help plant out an area in your neighbourhood. Mm. But by all means, if you've got a spot for another tree, we need to keep our green canopies oh, yes. up. Um, very, very important. Uh, we haven't got enough green canopy yet. Uh, the City of Melbourne is looking at how they can increase the green canopy to try and stop the um, whole um, heat island effect of around our mm, cities. So, um, so go out there and plant a tree today because it'll be a great day to do it. But, of course, we've run out of time for another week. We will be back at 7.30 next Sunday morning. So until then, bye for now.